to prepare for this election. To prepare for this election by preparing our hearts. You see, it's possible to be free from fear about this election, regardless of the outcome. It's possible to be free from obsession over this election, regardless of your political preference. It's possible to walk through this time with a blessed or happy soul. If, if you prepare your heart with one thing, hope. Hope. A theologically informed, biblically rooted, christ centered hope. That's what I hope you take away this morning. And that's where Psalm 2 helps us. Psalm 2 roused ancient Israel to, to hope in God, to trust in God, and it means to do the same for us in three ways. Three expressions of hope here to prepare your heart. First, the hope of an unshaken God. The hope of an unshaken God. Psalm 2 pictures the Gentile or non-Jewish nations raging or conspiring. And the psalmist is astonished, beginning the psalm with, Why? Why do the nations rage or conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Why are the nations so foolish to rage in verse 2 against the Lord, against Yahweh and his anointed. Now that word anointed is the word from which we get the word Messiah or Christ. But God's anointed here in this psalm first referred to human kings in ancient Israel. They were anointed, sort of set apart for this office. Now this psalm certainly looks beyond those human kings, as we'll see, but the initial historical reference is to human kings in ancient Israel. You see, Israel, ancient Israel was a theocracy, having God as king, God reigning through these human kings. And so, in this psalm, these unbelieving nations are refusing to submit to Israel's king. And so, refusing to submit to Israel's God, that's why the psalmist is so astonished. Why? He says. And then he looks heavenward. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It is a picture of God enthroned, sitting on his heavenly Throne. God is enthroned in verse 4, and he is unshaken. <laughs> he is unmoved. In fact, he is laughing at these earthly kings, holding them in scorn and derision. This, this laughter, you might say, is human language teaching us a theological truth. Kids, if you like the Marvel comic movies like I do, You'll understand this. If I said to you, kids, I am going to fight Captain America, and I'm going to fight the Incredible Hulk and Iron Man, you would laugh. You would rightfully laugh, because they would be all unmoved, 
unthreatened, unshaken by me, wouldn't they? That's the picture of God in this psalm. Unshaken by hostile nations. In fact, he says, instead in verse 6, verse 6, as for me, I have set my king, my king on Zion, my holy hill. In psalm 2 might be, might be a coronation psalm which they used when they crowned a new king for the kingdom in ancient Israel. It might be a coronation psalm. It's regardless a time when God is saying, you earthly kings, I have installed my king for my kingdom on the earth in Zion, basically in Jerusalem. You can, you can see the hope for ancient Israel here, can't you? The hope they were being roused an unshaken God on his throne, installing his king in Jerusalem, making Israel an unshakable kingdom if they follow God. An unshaken God building his unshakable kingdom. That's the picture in the first two stanzas. So you might say, you might say, therefore, if the United States follows God, we will be unshaken in the same way. But be careful there. Be careful. The United States is a democracy, not a theocracy. We never have been, never will be a theocracy. If you want to locate the United States in Psalm 2, our country is among those nations raging against God. So, brothers and sisters, don't confuse God's kingdom with our own country. This country was founded on many good principles. We have much, much to be thankful for. I love our country. I'm so glad to live here. We have much to give thanks for. But friends, the church the church is God's holy nation in the earth today. 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is God's holy nation. This psalm is a psalm of hope for the church today. An unshaken God. And so we in the church are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12. Unshaken God giving those in the church an unshaken kingdom. Our citizenship, our citizenship is now in heaven Philippians chapter 3. We are strangers and aliens, sojourners and exiles here. 1 Peter 2. This psalm should help us think that way and live that way. Citizens of another kingdom. In Acts chapter 4, two leading apostles have been arrested, Peter and John. The church is experiencing official persecution. So they turned to this psalm and found courage. They prayed, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David said by the Holy Spirit, quote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Do you hear Psalm 2? The kings of the earth set themselves against, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, and then they draw a straight line to Jesus. They use Psalm 2 as their lens, 
they realize that gospel opposition will not ultimately succeed. And so they then pray for boldness and power to keep on preaching Jesus. And they do. That's being a sojourner, an exile here. That's receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken from the unshaken God. It's a good place for us to start. I'm not sure if you saw Pastor John Piper's article, Persons, Policies, and Paths to Ruin. You may or may not agree with that, with his conclusions. But I was struck, I was struck by his word to pastors. He says, pastors, imagine that America collapses from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Ask yourself this, and I need to ask myself this. Ask yourself this, he says. Has my preaching been developing Christians who can sing on the scaffold, the words of Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go? This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Can we sing that, friends? If times get harder, with this hope we can. With this hope we can. Under the oppression of the Roman government in the first century, the elderly Bishop Polycarp was threatened with being burned at the stake. That's not what we're facing, thankfully. But just imagine, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, if it ever were to get there for us, learn from Polycarp. He said to the Roman Council, quote, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and Savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment, so they burned him at the stake. That's a stranger, an alien in action. That's receiving an unshaken kingdom from the unshaken God. So friends, you can go to the polls or mail in your ballot if there's still time and watch the results with that Hope, the unshaken God. Second, secondly, the un, I'm sorry, <laughs> the hope rather, the hope of a reigning king. The hope of a reigning king. An unshaken God establishing his kingdom now through a reigning king. Now in Psalm 2, the human king of ancient Israel speaks. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. A little background. The decree he's referencing is God's covenant with David. God's promise to David that David would always have a descendant reigning before God. Making those kings in the line of David a son of God. God's son in effect representing God. 
This human king, maybe, maybe as he's being crowned, is proclaiming that divine mandate from that covenant. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In other words, God has given birth today to my reign as king. Now keep that verse in mind. Then God, it seems, addresses his human king in verse 8. Ask of me. Ask of me. And I will make the nations, same word from verse 1, those unbelieving Gentile nations, I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's saying those earthly kings are like fragile clay pots, just fragile clay pots compared to God. Their reign is just fragile compared to God and his authority through this human king. Do you see the hope this was for Israel? God's sure promise he was making good on in this line of kings. Now it is, it is idealized in ways. Their kingdom never stretched to the very ends of the earth because those kings were mere shadows. Mere shadows pointing to the substance, the ultimate king, like we find in Acts 13. Make some connections with me. Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul preaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, this God has fulfilled by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. 40 verse 7. Or, similarly, Hebrews chapter 1. After God the Son made purification for our sins on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven, sat down at God's right hand to reign, to rule over all. The writer proves this by quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In other words, it's King Jesus ultimately speaking the words of verse 7. Proclaiming his divine mandate to rule the universe. And it's ultimately to Jesus that God speaks in verse 8, saying, The nations are your heritage. You will rule them with a rod of iron. Later on, you could find that reference in Revelation 2, Revelation 12. And maybe most vividly, Revelation 19, where the Apostle John writes, his eyes, his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which, listen, to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You hear the echo of Psalm 2? In other words, it's symbolic language to say, behold, your reigning king. He's reigning right now, like that. You might ask, what's the point of all this, Tab? Well, see the vast difference between King Jesus and any human leader. See the grand canyon of difference between King Jesus reigning right now and any president, senator, Supreme Court justice, you fill in the blank. 
Their administration is like a fragile clay pot compared to the one who rules with a rod of iron. That's the comparison you want to feel and derive hope from. Our king, brothers and sisters, he never runs for re-election. He never worries about counting votes. He doesn't care about how he's faring in the polls. He doesn't pay attention to his approval ratings for some reason. But he does have a platform on which he runs. Second Timothy 1. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, the good news. Imagine a political candidate today who said, my platform is I will abolish taxes. Would that get your attention? Yeah, some of you are shaking your heads. That might, that might matter to you. No more income tax, no property taxes. I'm not sure how we'd pay for an army and navy and roads and things like that, but don't, don't get into the details here. I'm running on this platform. I abolish taxes. Your king says, I abolish death. I have made purification for sins once for all. I walked out of a tomb. I ascended to heaven. I am on the throne right now at the Father's right hand, reigning over all. When I return, death will be abolished. There'll be no more sickness, no sorrow, no mourning, no crying or pain any longer. That's your king. Amen. That's the hope you want to feel this morning. He's reigning right now. He's not asking for your vote. He's commanding your hope. He's commanding your faith. He's commanding your trust. So how does this relate to an election? Well, there's one way. If our hope is in a crucified, risen, and reigning king, then we can approach politics and elections with appropriate expectations. I've mentioned this before, but I like the analogy Vincent Baycoat uses. He says it's approaching politics like you're singing the blues. Track with me. It's like singing the blues. You know, a great blues musician, they, they feel the pain they're singing about. Their, their songs cry out, this just breaks my heart, whatever it might be. And those aren't empty words. When someone's really singing the blues, they, they feel those things deeply. I was tempted to break into a song, but I'm not going to do that. But just imagine with me. Somebody singing the blues, and you feel it. You realize, man, they've walked through this. Their hearts are breaking. They are grieving. That's how politics and elections should be with the right expectation. It's like singing the blues. Because our hearts are broken over a broken world, and we grieve. We grieve because the problems of our world are far deeper than any government can possibly fix. That's what I mean by right expectations. Don't misunderstand. Human government is necessary and ordained by God. And good human government is a great blessing. But the best human government cannot solve our problems at the core. So, 
So don't view a Biden administration or a Trump administration as any kind of savior. Hopefully, whichever one it is, God uses for the good of the church. But don't view as any kind of savior. Have the right expectation because you have the right hope in the one who died, rose, and reigns and will bring everlasting change when he returns. Third, the hope of a rightful worship. The hope of a rightful worship. I think these things kind of build on themselves. An unshaken God establishing his kingdom through our reigning <coughs> king, the Lord Jesus Christ, leading for us a rightful worship. See in Psalm 2, in Psalm 2 next, those rebellious earthly kings are told to think carefully. Verse 10, look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And they're warned to serve Yahweh. They're warned to serve Israel's God, the true God. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, with awe, with wonder. Now, in context, those words, serve the Lord, that's worship language. Same word is used in Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Same word used in Psalm 103. Peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship, to worship the Lord. This is, in effect, worship language in Psalm 2. So, verse 12 commands, kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Now the kiss here is an act of homage, a sign of allegiance. In the book of 1 Kings, you recall the scene when the prophet Elijah is discouraged and kind of runs away. God says to him, quote, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to the false god Baal, and listen, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That's the picture, that's the idea. This kiss is the highest allegiance of your soul. And so the psalm concludes, blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him in the Lord. There is a bookend here with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together. They're kind of a unit. Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1, the blessed individual. Psalm 2, the blessed people. And I hope you see the hope for Israel here. Ancient Israel. The hope they were being roused to. Peoples not submitted to Israel's God will perish. But grace breaks in as well. All who do submit to this God find true blessedness, true happiness for their souls. And it's not hard, is it? It's not hard to see how this gets transposed to Jesus and is a worship question for you and me. 
Will we serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, with awe, with wonder? Or will we refuse and face his wrath? And if you're here and you're not yet submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I just want to appeal to you that you would feel here a loving warning from God. He wishes for you not to perish, but to know his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his kindness in Jesus Christ. He's calling you to submit to him right now, to trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God and will. Let's apply this hope, this hope to politics and elections because, because friends, we are always worshiping. Did you know that? We are created for worship and we are always worshiping someone or something. So when it comes to politics or elections, the question is not, are we worshiping? The question is, what or whom are we worshiping? As Jonathan Lehman notes, politics, politics can be a Trojan horse for idolatry, for false worship. You know the story of the Trojan horse? After a fruitless siege, the city of Troy, the Greek army makes a huge horse, sneaks some soldiers inside, they leave the horse outside the city of Troy. The people of Troy take it as a victory trophy and pull it inside the city gates. At night, Greek soldiers creep out of the horse and open the city gates for the Greek army. Lehman notes, politics can be like that for us. A kind of Trojan horse sneaking something into our hearts that we don't realize. A misplaced allegiance. A hope, a trust that rivals God himself. It's like what Jesus said about money. Jesus said, you cannot serve, you cannot serve God and money. Not that it's hard, it's impossible. You cannot have two ultimate allegiances in your soul. That's how it is for money, that's how it is for politics, friends. Now to be clear, you can worship Christ and be involved in politics. In fact, we need Christians to do so. You can do that. But you cannot worship Christ and worship politics. That's the point. You cannot have your ultimate allegiance be Jesus and your ultimate allegiance be a political party or candidate. You can't do both. So, how do we know when our worship is shifting? How do we know when the allegiance of our hearts approaching an election might be, might be misplaced? How can we tell when politics has become a Trojan horse for idolatry in our lives? Well, here's one way. It's when we become very myopic in our outlook, nearsighted. I, I have 2400 vision. I am very nearsighted. What normal vision can see at 500 feet, I have to get up to 20 feet to see. We become like that when our allegiance shifts. It's like a racehorse with blinders on. You can't
can't see the big picture. The headline, for instance, the headline from a conservative magazine read in all caps, why this is the most, most important election of our lifetime. And a left-leaning publication read, quote, the most important election of our lives. But both of those headlines were from 2016. <laughs> from the last presidential election. The last one was the most important. Now, every election has its importance. I'm not saying otherwise. But you see how we start to lose perspective. Our allegiance shifts. We put the blinders on. A pastor friend of mine named Mike Bullmore put it like this. He said, we should be concerned about a way of speaking like that and thinking that gets things out of proportion. It stirs up fear and hatred for other people. It stirs up alarm and panic and ungenerous, untruthful, and exaggerated speech. And all of that, he says, all of that is unbecoming of followers of Jesus. That's how you can tell when the allegiance is shifting. You're demonizing other people. A rightful worship, a rightful worship realizes that who is on the throne is infinitely more important than who's in the White House. A rightful worship realizes that who is on the throne is infinitely more important than who controls the Senate. A rightful worship gives you perspective, brothers and sisters. It gives you a higher and larger point of view because you are rooted in God's truth and committed to Christ. So, I want to ask you, out of my love for you, what will be happening in your heart on November 4th and beyond? Whenever the dust settles from this election, God only knows. When it finally does, what will be happening in your heart? Who or what will you be serving, regardless of outcome? If you have this rightful worship, this hope, you will not be panicked and you will not be self-righteous. You will not be fearful. You will not be obsessed. You will have this blessedness, this happiness of soul because you are taking refuge in your so prepare, friends, prepare for this election by preparing your heart with hope. A theologically informed, biblically rooted, Christ-centered hope. Let's pray in light of that and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I want to give you a chance to respond then. I want to ask you to consider your hope because I have prayed and I desire, I believe God wants you to leave here with a Godward hope. Consider right now your unshaken God. 
Consider that you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Consider the hope of your reigning and returning king. Consider the hope, the difference, the rightful worship of him. Maybe acknowledge if your hope has been misplaced in ways. If political opponents have become political enemies in your mind. If you have been consumed with fear. Ask him to meet you. Ask him to fill your heart with fresh hope. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us here. We're thankful for our country. We're thankful for the countless blessings we enjoy. And yet, at the same time, our hearts are prone to wander. So help us, we ask you, prepare our hearts with hope. Help us to live gladly for you above all. Help us to locate our ultimate hopes in Jesus above all. Help us to rightfully worship you as a result. We thank you. In Jesus' name.